according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. It's possible we could conclude the chapter today. Possible. Hebrews chapter 10. We have actually been more in this chapter than uh, other chapters. It has gone slower, but it is my favorite. My favorite chapter and my favorite book, right here in Hebrews chapter 10. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, rejoicing in God the Holy Spirit, Father, and the blessing we have in this church age to have God the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer priest, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. All things have been made possible by your faithfulness, Father, and we call upon that faithfulness here today. As we study to show ourselves approved, open the eyes of our understanding and bless our time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, and we are down really in uh, verses 35 and following. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And the confidence we have, we have not because of ourselves, but because of God. We have the confidence He provides, the standing that we have in Christ. Confidence even opened this uh, section in verse 19. Brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. If we think we have confidence in ourselves for serving Him or for anything that we do, we need to think again. Our self-confidence is a lie. It is an idol, and we want to have nothing to do with it. Our confidence comes from God. Our adequacy comes from God, and we can appreciate that. And so we have confidence to enter the holy place. Everything we do that has rewardability happens in that holy place. It happens in our priestly function standing before the Father. Remember, all is lawful, but not all is profitable. If we're going to serve our Lord, if we're going to lay up treasure in heaven, it happens through our faithful service in the Holy of Holies, standing before our our Father as this passage teaches us. And so verse 35 tells us, don't throw it away. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The sadness, of course, is that uh, the book of Hebrews, which does teach eternal security, is that we cannot lose our salvation. We can't throw away our salvation, but we can throw away the confidence that our salvation should provide. The access we have before our Father, the standing that we have in Christ, and believers do every day. When believers stop living according to the Word of God, when they stop living by faith, they are throwing away their confidence. He goes on to say in verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And this is where we pick up from our study from last week. And I appreciate uh, being able to teach line by line and precept upon precept. It's not an an issue of creativity, of trying to think up a creative sermon. What am I going to preach on this week? Well, where did I leave off last week? That that makes it easy. We'll just pick up there and, and look at the next verse after that. And so you have need of endurance. Well, the good news is, is that he gives us endurance that we have need of 
the very thing that he supplies for us, the fruit of the Spirit supplies endurance, among other things. Endurance is needed and it's provided through the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's uh, critical for us to recognize that everything that's expected of us is what he's given us that uh, he's not asking anything that we're going to produce in ourselves. He's not asking us to produce anything that he himself is not providing in the first place. And this is what makes uh, the Christian way of life so simple. And the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is walking in faithfulness according to what he has designed. And so we can understand this as well. I'm going to turn to Galatians 5 here in a moment, but before I do, I just want to bring to your attention here the, the echoes from chapter 6 that are coming back again here in chapter 10. Because when it says, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Understand, this is in the outworking of the Christian walk in time. This is centered in our Christian experience. This is not centered in any way in uh, receiving eternal life when we die and go to heaven. This is not talking about an eternal reward. This is temporal blessings and forsaking temporal blessings. And uh, the allusions here, the echoes, if you will, of chapter 6 are coming out again for our application. I just, uh, if you want to hold your finger there and look back a couple chapters, chapter 6, you're going to notice this. We are to be imitators of the Old Testament saints. We're to learn from what the Old Testament teaches us related to how they functioned in their stewardship. And so, uh, for example, Hebrews 6.12 says, you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And understand, and we're going to learn in chapter 11, we're going to learn in chapter 12, we're going to learn that there were eternal promises that no Old Testament believer ever saw. They never saw the coming kingdom. That's still future in the millennium, but they did receive promises in time. And that's what's being spoken of in these, in these passages. And so, uh, still in, in Hebrews 6, it says, uh, in verse 13, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. Abraham waited 100 years to have a, have a son. Sarah waited 90 years to have a baby. So how long are we willing to wait to inherit the promises if God has made these promises to us in our temporal walk here in, in, uh, in time? And it says in verse 15, And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And so these are the verses now that, that we have echoed in chapter 10, from chapter 6 to chapter 10, and we need that same endurance, we need that same patience, we need the same to, to follow the example of Abraham in his, face, in his faith. And remember what happened when for a season he stopped waiting, he took upon himself human effort to try to have a baby with a handmaiden, and, uh, and we, know, we understand how that worked out with the birth of Ishmael, and, and uh, Israel is still paying the price of that to this day with uh, the, the conflict there. So all that being said, we can return back to chapter 10 and just remind our, having reminded ourselves of those echoes from chapter 6, we see it here as well. You have need of endurance. And unlike the Old Testament, David and Abraham and Moses and all those Old Testament saints, none of them were given the fruit of the Spirit that we have. None of them were given love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. They weren't given the endurance that we're given through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have need of and He supplies so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 
And so we can appreciate that as well. All right, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I hope we're familiar with Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. One of the benefits we have of teaching the way that we do is that uh, it wasn't that long ago when we taught the book of Galatians verse by verse. And so if you were here then, you might remember this. Otherwise, uh, the notes are in the hallway in that Galatians notebook, and the MP3s are sitting on the website minding their own MP3 business. So you can go get them anytime and listen to Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6 as we looked at these verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. There's one form of endurance right there is the patient endurance. We get multiple kinds. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's another kind of endurance. Against such, there is no law. So he, we need it, and he provides it. Over in chapter 6, we see verses 8 through 10. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's a big clue. When you need endurance, don't get it from the flesh. Because uh, if you're going to sow to the flesh, you're going to be reaping an awful lot of corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's the kind of endurance we need. And so let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And I love the expression due time. The Greek word is kairos, in due time. And uh, that's due time from God's viewpoint, by the way, not ours. We tend to think due time is right now, always, uh, as soon as possible. And why don't I have it yet? And yet God's due time and the perfection of his wisdom is such that um, we run with endurance. So then while we have opportunity, and there's another, uh, you know, just reading the English, you don't really see the link between the due time in, uh, in one verse and then the opportunity in the next verse, but here it is. The due time, as we're waiting for God's due time, is our opportunity to stay faithful. It is our opportunity to do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we have the principle here. All right, well, as Hebrews says, you have need of endurance, and thank God he gives us, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have the, uh, the endurance that is needed and provided. We have promises that we get in time. We have promises that we're waiting for, even as Israel did. I think this is also a noteworthy contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes people get confused between Israel and the church and they want to blend the two or they want to say somehow the church was the fulfillment of Israel or Israel was the Old Testament church and, and it's, it's actually completely wrong. Israel is God's earthly people and we are the church is God's heavenly people and they became Jews by virtue of physical birth. We become Christians by virtue of the spiritual birth. When you're born again in Christ, when you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you become a son of God. And this is, um, of course, quite a distinction. Another distinction is this issue on the promises. Everything Israel had was looking forward, a coming king, a coming kingdom, future promises. We get our blessings up front. We are born again into this living hope. We are saved with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, already assigned to each one of us as a present reality. And so some of these contrasts, I think, are quite remarkable. Uh, we're going to have a verse coming up in chapter 11. I just want to bring it to your attention today so that when we get there, I can say, remember back when we were in chapter 10 in verse 36. 
when we talk about receiving the promise. And you'll say, oh yeah, I remember that. Hebrews 11.13. And I know many of you have been waiting since we started this whole Hebrews class. You want to get to chapter 11. All these stories, all this hall of fame of faith is right here in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're, we're almost there. We could finish chapter 10 today, but all right. We have this hall of fame of faith and all these examples through these first 12 verses. And what's the summary statement? It says, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having them welcomed them from a distance. So in other words, while they could observe, for example, Abraham could celebrate the birth of Isaac, but he never saw the birth of Messiah. He never saw the birth of Jesus. He had to see it prophetically. He had to see it as a future hope. He he could walk around the land and he could see the land. And so we could say that he received the promise, but he's still paying cash for a cave to bury Sarah and he's still living as a sojourner and a stranger. And so while they did have certain blessings in time that they observed in time, the bulk of the covenant promises to the Jewish people are still future. They even crucified their Messiah in 33 AD without seeing the promises that are waiting for them now in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And this is the attitude that we should have. We should have that attitude that this world is not our home, that we receive promises here and now, but we're waiting for the glory yet to be revealed, that we're living day by day expecting a trumpet to sound and for us to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so the attitude of Old Testament saints, we have a corollary, something that's analogous for us today in the church, New Testament saints, we actually are already given the down payment. We're given the deposit. As I mentioned, the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us is the down payment, it's the deposit, the earnest money of our inheritance. And we have verses that speak to this in 2 Corinthians 1.22 and Ephesians 1.14, that we have that deposit already. Hebrews talks about tasting of the powers of the age to come. That's, that's the same reference as, as discussing the down payment that we have. Hopefully we're familiar with these. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians is another book that we've studied in not too long ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so if you've forgotten what we studied back in this series... You get a reminder this morning and then uh, a notebook that's available, the MP3s that are available. 2 Corinthians 1.22. Verse 21 says, He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is a universal provision This is given to every believer. Notice it's the universal language of this passage. Paul, his audience, every believer in the church age. It's not a second blessing for a special few who attain to it. It is a universal blessing, the the privilege of being indwelled by God the Holy Spirit from the moment you place your faith in Christ. Ephesians 1.14 says much the same thing. This is the text the longest run-on sentence in all of Greek literature. My 
essay fundamentals teacher, Roberta Hawkins, would have hated this chapter. She would have hated this long run on sentence. She would have graded Paul terribly for, uh, for this. But from verse 3 down to verse 14 is one long sentence. The longest in the Bible, the longest in all known Greek literature. But this is our positional truth blessing that we have every, notice verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's our possession now. We are a heavenly people now. And so uh, verse 13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Do you remember who preached that to you? Do you remember who told you about Christ and eternal life? It was my mother in 1973 at the kitchen table. And she walked me through it. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise that very moment, from that moment on, and you didn't have to get baptized or walk an aisle or stand or say anything. You simply believed, having also believed you were sealed in him, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. That's the pledge, the down payment, the earnest money of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I tell you, this New Testament truth is so amazing. What Israel had in their land grant and their national inheritance uh, was one thing. It was glorious. And of all the nations of the earth, uh, there was not a Gentile nation on this earth that could, that could match the blessings that Jehovah Elohim had given to, to Israel. But we have heavenly possessions. We don't have an earthly land grant. We, we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. And the, the positional truth reality of our place in heaven is altogether glorious. All right, so Old Testament saints, they're still waiting to receive what they were promised. But New Testament saints, yes, we're still waiting for the totality, but we already, even now, have the deposit. We have the down payment. And best of all, we have the spiritual eyes to see where the rest of it is. We can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We can keep our attention on the things above. That that hope that's laid up for us in heaven that hope on layaway we saw last hour in Colossians 1, that hope on layaway, we can keep looking at it all day, every day, and there's nothing wrong with that. So we are given an earnest of our inheritance and we function every day in the living hope. Sometimes it's called the living hope, sometimes it's called the happy hope, the blessed hope, waiting, waiting every day for that trumpet to sound. So if you turn to 1 Peter 1, 3, you find the language of living hope. If you turn to Titus 2, you see the language of happy hope or blessed hope. Say, let's look at these. 1 Peter chapter 1. See, right now our visitors are wondering, how come this guy goes from verse to verse to verse? We flip around a lot. Yes, we do. Hebrews 10 is our base text, but we search the Scriptures and we compare Scripture to Scripture and we see if these things are so. And we get the whole counsel of God's Word. All right. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Old Testament saints didn't have this walk. Old Testament saints didn't stand in a living hope. 
Old Testament saints kept killing more and more animals, bringing animal sacrifices, looking forward to a future coming and death of their Messiah. But we live in a stewardship whereby our Savior died and rose again on our behalf. And so we walk in this living hope. And I love that expression, living hope. We're living stones. We bring living sacrifices because we function in a living hope all day, every day. What a blessing. In Titus chapter 2, it's called the blessed hope. I prefer happy hope instead of blessed hope, but that's, that's just me. Titus, I don't know if any of these Bible publishers are going to listen to my opinion when they update their English translation or not, but the Greek word makarios speaks of happiness. It's not eulogetos. It's not the, the blessed in, uh, in other applications. It's makarios for a happy joy, the happy hope that we have waiting for that trumpet to sound. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, this is verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So why do we, why do we live our lives according to the Bible? Why, do we, why don't we just go out and fornicate like all the unbelievers? Why don't we just, because we are living in the present age with a view to the age to come. We have the down payment of our inheritance and we're living in the expectation of the rest of it coming today. Sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the, it says blessed hope, looking for the happy hope. Makarios for happy, elpis for hope. The happy hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It could happen today. It could happen any moment. The Lord himself will descend with a shout. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It could have happened last night while we were sleeping, but it didn't. Here we are. We're living. We're one more day. We wake up this morning and say, all right, Lord, one more day. I'm disappointed that the trumpet didn't come last night, but today is a day I can serve you. And so I'm going to live sensibly, godly, righteously in the present age looking for that happy hope. All right, and then back to Hebrews 10, verses 37, 38, 39. O ye of little faith. Actually, there's a lot here. We'll see. A lot of Old Testament quotations. Passages from the Old Testament that get abused uh, because instead of being adapted for New Testament application, they get stolen. They get absconded with. They get, um, in, in these systems of replacement theology, they, they, they get abused in their original context, whereby believers fail to identify how they, uh, how they should apply in their original setting. How it is that Israel will have a future fulfillment of Isaiah 26. That God's not a liar. And he made certain promises in Isaiah 26. He will make good on those promises for the Jewish people because they're the people he made the promises to. Now, when it gets brought into Hebrews and when it's quoted, when it's cited by way of illustration or it's cited by way of of reference, we can adapt it and recognize it for what it is as an adaptation in our application. 
But we can't abscond with it. We can't, uh, we can't claim it in its entirety because we're not Israel. We're the church. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're the, we're the royal family of God in the heavenly places. So these things become important too. All right. Verses 37, 38, and 39. Why do we have need of endurance? We, well, we want to receive what was promised. And how long is that going to take? <laughs> well, verse 37 says, For yet in a very little while. And does it bother you that that was written 2,000 years ago? Okay? Doesn't bother me at all. In God's timetable, of course, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day has just been a couple of days. Give him some time. All right, he's got a plan. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. When the Father gives the word, there's no slowing him down. Jesus is coming back and he's going to shout and we're going to rise up and meet him in the air. And what a day that's going to be. Okay, there is a great day coming. All right. He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And we get this. This is another Old Testament passage. In fact, it's been quoted. Uh, We know it more often from Romans. We know it more often from the New Testament, walking by faith, because honestly, whoever goes back to read Habakkuk anymore? I mean, that's he was one of the minor prophets after all. Who pays attention to Habakkuk? And yet this is what we see here. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, that sounds dire. And it is. Okay? And it's not what the Arminians think that says, oh, you can lose your salvation. This passage is not even going there. The context here is how we're living not how we get to, to heaven or how we get saved or how we know we have eternal life. It's how are we living right here, right now? And is he pleased with us or is he not pleased with us? Remember, with most of the Exodus generation, he was not well pleased. But they were still his people. This was the whole point that was made in chapter 3, 4, and 5 when we were talking about entering into his rest. That he brought the Jews through in the Exodus. He parted the, the waters and they passed through the, the Red Sea. They came out of their bondage in Egypt. They stood on dry ground on the other side. The waters came crashing down. Not just a Bible story. This is theologically profound. That when you are delivered out of the slave market of sin, when you are saved, when you are redeemed, there's no going back. Even those that wanted to go back, there was no going back. It's a one-way street. Salvation is a one-way street, eternally secured. There's no going back. And yet, with most of them, he was not well-pleased. So a body of redeemed people can be highly displeasing to the Father who redeemed them. And this comes about when you don't walk by faith. Because he started teaching them the Word of God. He gave them stone tablets. He sent them Moses. And what do they do? They built a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And so the penalty for not being well pleased is not losing your salvation, is not being returned back to your bondage, it's the failure to enter into rest, it's the failure to receive the promises, it's the temporal life discipline in time as we understand it. And so shrinking back to destruction is not going to hell because you lost your salvation. It's living the life without faith here in time. It's the destruction that comes in time 
when God administers his judgment in your life. The little wake-up calls that says you're not walking right. The little reminders that says uh, the walk by faith doesn't get this discipline. And we better listen. And it's better to listen sooner rather than later because those gentle warnings become more firm. And the firm warnings get downright painful. The hand of God's discipline increases and increases and increases. And if we don't listen, the, there is the ultimate sin unto death, whereby we still don't lose our salvation, but we, we forsake all future eternal reward because we're going out a loser in time. And we're going to stand at the judgment seat. I say buck naked, but we're given a white robe. But there's no crown, there's no rewards, there's no gold, silver, and precious stones. There's no treasure to cast at Jesus' feet. I don't know about you, but I want to cast treasure at Jesus' feet. I want buckets. I want so I don't want just pocket change, right? I don't want to just feel around and say, well, here's a few coins and the best I could do, that's all I got. I want to lay up so much treasure in heaven that there's buckets. I want a whole angelic brigade following behind with wheelbarrows. Isn't he worth it? I mean, Jesus is worth it based on what he's done, what he's, how he's provided for us. So my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And here the author of Hebrews plus his associates. We believe there was a a team that he traveled with. There's several we statements that he makes. Those we statements, my my dad used to ask if I had a mouse in my pocket or something, but those we statements. The author of Hebrews makes some we statements that betray, first of all, that he's not alone in the authorship, that he has some partners that, that are joining with him in the things that they're writing. But also in many cases, I think here, the we expands beyond the author and his team, but also to include the readers, the recipients. He's talking to the original people that are reading this text. The converted priests, by the way, Jewish priests that are now church-age believers in the, in the New Testament. And he says, we are not of those. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so we have to ask ourselves, what sort of believers are we? Are we of this sort or we are of that sort? Of which sort are we? And it's an honest question and we we need to answer that question and, and biblically we can answer that question because so long as we're walking by faith and living our lives according to the Word of God, we are of these. But when we abandon our walk by faith and stop walking according to the Word of God, then we are of those who shrink back for the destruction of the soul. And it comes down to that. I hope we were, we're clear on that. This, and and this, this forms, uh, this is actually the prologue to chapter 11. Because when he says we are like these, those of faith, he then illustrates with all these examples of faith through the Old Testament. He illustrates with Old Testament believers, tremendous men of faith, you know, from the lion's den to the fiery furnace to, I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of stories are here in this chapter. And they were, they were great heroes of the faith. 
And we, we appreciate the example that they set, the doctrine we learn, the things that are written for our instruction. And we want to recognize that God expects more from us because we've got a whole lot more Bible than they ever had. We've got a Greek canon of Scripture in addition to the Hebrew canon of Scripture. And many of them only had a partial Hebrew canon of Scripture, depending on what century they lived in. And so uh, that's frightening too. When you read Job, how much Bible did Job have? None. Not one book of the Bible was written when Job went through his testing. All right, so we have the examples here. So now, 37, 38, 39... What do we have here? We have Habakkuk. We have other references. Let's understand when Old Testament promises are adapted, when Old Testament promises are adapted to a New Testament audience, we do so without appropriating and replacing the original promises. So in a sense, you have to study each passage twice. In a sense, when you see it, Go back to the text in the Old Testament. Study it for its own sake. Understand the impact to the Jewish people. Understand the impact to Jews and Gentiles both in an Old Testament stewardship. Under law, under promise, waiting for a coming Messiah. Understand what Isaiah is saying, what Habakkuk is saying. Then, when it gets quoted in the New Testament, understand how how it's being quoted, Understand whether it's simply an illustration. Understand if it's an adaptation. How is it being adapted? In what way do we connect with it? It becomes important. All right. And this is what we teach in our seminary, by the way. This is, this is foundational for rightly dividing the word of truth. Or else you end up with confusion pertaining to the Old Testament versus the New Testament. All right. So, Isaiah twenty six twenty one. What's this about? Isaiah 26. You know, you talk about um, you talk about men of whom the world was not worthy or the kind of ministry that Old Testament saints had, Old Testament prophets had. I couldn't imagine some of the things that they had to go through in the Isaiah... Isaiah walked around naked for three years and uh, in the command of God uh, that the shame of his nakedness might be an illustration to the Jewish people. And uh, Okay, you know, do I have faith to obey something like that? If, uh, if God called me to do something like that? Or, or Ezekiel, God killed his wife and said, you're not allowed to grieve. You can't grieve, you can't mourn, you can't conduct a funeral service. Again, it's going to be an illustration. Okay. Hosea had to marry a harlot and then take her back. All these things. So here's Isaiah now. And in chapter 26, um, <laughs> verse, 20, verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Now I asked you a little bit ago in Hebrews, that phrase in a little while. What does that mean? And we talk about in Hebrews that it was 2,000 years ago with Hebrews being written in the mid-60s AD. Well, here's Isaiah written 700 years before that. And he's still saying a little while. A little while, right? It's like your child in the back seat. Are we there yet? (laughs) Almost. 
Okay, just a little while. And when you've said it 15 times, they start to catch on to the fact that adults have a different perspective for a little while than children have. I mean, it's just true. There's things that we think are just, you know, and, and anymore, it could be days, weeks, months. It's still just been, you know, just the other day. And that's the perspective of time, the older we, and I'm told by our elders, that it gets worse. That it gets worse, okay? Imagine when we're with the Lord outside of space and time. Imagine our perspective when we're in glory. A little while is something else. All right. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. One of the things we have to identify with as the body of Christ is our place in the church. That's not our place in Israel. And the recognition that Israel still has a day of coming judgment. The whole world has a day of coming judgment. And that can't come until the church is removed. That the church, God must fulfill his purpose for the church to remove us away because he's delivering us from the wrath to come. And yet this promise is still true. This is the little while they're waiting for. And it's going to happen just a little while after our little while happens. All right? Because our little while is going to be a trumpet that takes us to heaven. And then their little while is going to happen when uh, Antichrist is birthed and revealed and takes the reins of the world government. And uh, all the things that we study in our eschatological studies pertaining to the tribulation, pertaining to uh, the end times. End times can't come while we're still here. What What a joy. All right. And so we have these promises here. And there's more. I mean, when you notice, <laughs> this is a fun chapter. If it, Some of us were here when we went through Isaiah, 66 chapters and 66 Sundays, one per week. Remember that? That roller coaster? All right. And, um, you know, when you talk about as, as a pregnant woman, look at, look at Isaiah 26, 17. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, She writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed in labor, we gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. How vivid. What a a prophecy, what a message. Recognizing that God accomplishes what we think nothing's happening, it's happening. God's going to be the one faithfully to bring it about. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dews as the dew of the dawn, the earth will give birth to the Raphaim, the, depart- the departed spirits. All right. Anyway, so there's a prophecy here. There's a context here. The context is for Israel. It's not for us. We're not, we're not living in, in fear or expectation of Antichrist in the, in the Great Tribulation. We're not living in that anticipation. That's Israel's destiny, not ours. We, we can adapt, but we don't appropriate. We certainly don't replace the original promises. We don't want to conflate just because this verse says in a little while and this verse says in a little while. We don't just 
uh, mash them together in some general uh, fulfillment of non-fulfillment. It comes right down to it. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if you can't remember how to find Habakkuk in the Minor Prophets. I recognize that's one of the great advantages of tapping glass instead of flipping paper. When you're tapping glass on your phone app, it it lays it out there to show you where those Bible books are. And some of you have gotten pretty good at glass tapping instead of page flipping. And I don't blame you. I bounce around a lot. All right. Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, what's Habakkuk? Habakkuk's the hugger. Habakkuk is the... He would have loved it in Texas because everybody hugs, right? But Habakkuk the hugger. And uh, some of these arguments that he has with the Lord and some of the... Um, some of the... Um, he really... He goes to the Lord in prayer and he gives him the whatnot. And he says, Lord, this is what I feel. And this is what you promised. And when am I going to see this? And when's this going to happen? And um, you get a lot of that through chapter one. Uh, the how long, O Lord. And then into chapter two, he says, I will, stay, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved because I'm not as right as I think I am, and he's not as wrong as I think he is. And as I'm going to him in prayer, I'm getting my doctrine straightened out, and I'm learning. And so the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. (laughs) You know, you're waiting to write down the Word's message, and okay, R-U-N. Oh, run. Okay, (laughs) got it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. And what's so marvelous about this too, and the the issue here, Israel never had a clue. The the church was a mystery. It was not seen in the Old Testament. There was going to be a 2,000 year parenthesis in the plan of God. There was no clue to that anywhere in the Old Testament. When, when, when John the Baptist came, he said, Behold, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came forth. He said, You're king. And he, and he anointed him. And, and, and really, the kingdom was at hand right up until the point that they crucified their Messiah. That they put their king on a cross. Then he died, and he was buried, and then he rose again. And then instead of bringing in the kingdom, which is what all the disciples wanted, oh, they were so excited, He had 40 days of resurrection ministry and they felt that was long enough. All right, you're dead, you're back. Can we have a kingdom now? And uh, he said no. And he ascended to the Father's right hand and they stood there on the Mount of Olives looking up like, you know, turkeys in the rain. And we've had 2,000 years now of this parenthesis where in the Father's wisdom now he's calling forth a heavenly people, neither Jew nor Gentile. He's not done with Israel. He'll get back to them in just a little while. He's going to get back to them soon as our little while is wrapped up. Then their little while is about to be unleashed. 
and everything the Jews think they've gone through, and they've gone through a lot, the Holocaust and everything else, present uh, terrorist attacks and everything else, everything they've gone through up till now is going to be forgotten because the hell that gets unleashed upon them by Antichrist is, makes everything else fade. And so, though it tarries, wait for it. Don't be a mocker. The mockers that mock to say, oh, it's taken so long, it's just not going to happen. Oh, it's taken so long, it's really just myth. And oh, it's, you know, that, that promise that was made way back when. Come on, this is, this is the 21st century. Get with the program. Get with the modern world. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come and will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. This is why it's worth going back to read the original quote. Because when this verse gets brought into Romans, when it gets brought into Hebrews, when it gets brought into everywhere else, it gets brought into the New Testament. It's always just the second part of the verse fourth that the righteous one will live by faith. The warning is the other side of that coin. If you're not the righteous one, you're the proud one. If you're not an imitator of Christ, you're an imitator of Satan. You're the, you're the offspring of Satan. The unbeliever is the offspring of Satan. And so as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. We, on the other hand, our soul is right. It is well. It is well with my soul. That's why we walk by faith. The righteous one will live by faith. So we want to adapt the Old Testament promises. We want to recognize them for what they are. We still teach them in rightly dividing the word truth as having a future fulfillment for Israel. And we take it from there. So what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for Antichrist? No, we're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for the the bridegroom. We're the bride. We're waiting for the head. We're the body waiting for the head. We're the bridegroom waiting for the bride. I'm sorry, we're the bride waiting for the bridegroom. Said that backwards. All right. The body waits for the head. The bride waits for the bridegroom. Isn't that great? Our wedding services are actually backwards. Every wedding service is, is backwards. Because what happens is the, the, the groomsmen come in first, the groom, the, usually sometimes the pastor, and we all walk in, and then we stand there like bumpkins waiting, right? And then the music starts playing, and here come the bridesmaids and the flower girl, and, and then the music changes, Everyone stands up, the bride comes in, or dad's walking her down the aisle, okay? What does the Bible say? Behold the bridegroom, okay? The bride is clothed white and clean. The bride is glorious because of the bridegroom. If it's not for the bridegroom, she's not in fine linen, white and clean. Anyway. I don't think I'm going to single-handedly overturn 2,000 years of tradition and practice. (laughs) But I have cited Behold the Bridegroom in many of my wedding services. And I have discussed the relationship between Christ and the church and the principles that bless any marriage in the church age as it pertains to Christ and the church. So the body waits for our head, the bride waits for our bridegroom, and the principle of imminency, 
The principle of imminency is the living and happy hope for every generation of the church. Every generation of the church. That includes us today. Every generation of the church can assume that we are the rapture generation. We absolutely are the rapture generation. And if we're wrong, when we're dead and buried, our children can assume that they're the rapture generation. But I don't think we're going to be here that long. We had intimations of this in Philippians chapter 3. Remember as we were teaching a couple months back? Um, Okay, maybe more than a couple months back. In Philippians chapter 3, the recognition Paul talks about, if perhaps I may attain to the out-resurrection out of the dead. Philippians 3, 11, 20, and 21. Philippians is easier than Habakkuk. You can find that, no problem. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Uh, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to... And it's, the, it's a different word. It's not anastasis. It's the ex-anastasis, the out-resurrection away from the dead, out of the dead. It's a rapture reference. It's not the general resurrection on Judgment Day on the last day. This is the trumpet when the bride is called home. If perhaps I may. That's the maybe that all of us can hope maybe we'll still be alive when the trumpet sounds. Getting resurrected is not a maybe. Everyone gets resurrected. But still being alive when the trumpet sounds? Yeah, that's the maybe that every generation can say, maybe us. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly. Today could be the day. Who will transform the body of our humble state. Can you wait for that? Transforming this body, this body of dust, this body of sin, this body that groans. Are you kidding me? There's a new body on order. And it can come today. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And that eschatological subjection starts with the rapture of the church. It starts with our bodies being transformed. When we lay down mortality and take up immortality, when we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye, I like 1 Peter 1.7 that talks about the time of your sojourn upon this earth. It's just a throwaway phrase maybe. Some people just glance, glance past it and move on to the next issue. But I love it. In 1 Peter 1.17, the time of your sojourn, the time of your stay. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay. The little words on earth are put in there just to help with the translation. I mean, I don't know about you, but we all live on earth, right? The, the time of your stay, it's just, that's, that's what life is about. We're born, we live, we die, and that time in between is just, it's a sojourn, it's a stay. We conduct ourselves with fear. 
during the time of your stay on earth. Okay? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. What this world calls precious metals, God calls perishable. Silver and gold, eh, perishable. Because the whole universe is going to be consumed in fire anyway. We were bought by the blood of Christ. Walking by faith pleases God and preserves the soul. Walking by faith pleases God and preserves the soul. This is not about believing in Jesus to receive eternal life. This is talking about believers who in the outworking of their faith are walking by faith. This is what pleases God and preserves the soul. But shrinking back sparks a temporal life destruction. Shrinking back sparks a temporal life destruction. The hand of God's discipline, and thank God for it, When we get to chapter 12, we're going to learn to thank God for our divine discipline because He deals with us as with sons. And it's going to ask the question, which of you is without discipline? The the fact is we all are sons. We all have discipline because we all have a Father who loves us. If you're not being disciplined by God the Father, that's probably an indicator that He doesn't acknowledge you as His son. The Bible calls that person a bastard. Okay? kind of harsh language. Language is not even used anymore today. These days in our culture, legitimacy and illegitimacy, it's, it's, it's not even discussed. It's not even, uh, uh, not even a thing. Okay? But in the scriptures it is. And the whole idea of, of being claimed as a, as a child because the Father loves you and claims you and expects you to live to his standards. That means we're under judgment. That means he disciplines us. He disciplines us because he loves us. All right, so how do I get through these verses in the time remaining? Because guess what? That's the last slide. We did it. We finished chapter 10 today. You didn't think we would. All right, we haven't read all those verses yet, but we're close. Walking by faith pleases God and preserves the soul. Remember that word save. Remember sozo. And all the other vocabulary we have for saving and preserving and delivering. Yes, it's used of the day we get eternal life, but it's used of so much more beyond that. Because I tell you, while I did get saved in 1973, I keep on, God saves me every day. His word saves me all the time. His word saves me every time there's a sin temptation and then the word of God comes alive in my soul and says, uh, you don't need to be doing that. The Holy Spirit says, no, no, that's not, that's not yours. All right. And so I'm saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. And some glorious day we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin when we're face to face with Jesus Christ. James one twenty one. I quote a lot. I don't often turn there, but I use the words a lot. It says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You see that? And this is what we want to do. This is why we come to church. This is why we're here today. 
I mean, it's one thing to just, you know, get some information, get some facts. But are you here in humility, humble before the Lord, to receive the word implanted that this is truth? This can now live inside of me. This can shape how I think. This can shape the decisions I make. This can be reflected and expressed in my actions, in my family, in my marriage, in my workplace. This shapes how I think. This shapes who I am. It is able to save the soul. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls and prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers only who delude themselves. There's a crowd that just wants to learn more and learn more and learn more, but they never live it. If you're not a doer of the word of God, what are you doing? You're deceiving yourself. 1 Peter 1.9 Obtaining This is talking about walking by faith, pleasing the Lord. Although you have not seen Him, you love Him. And although you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Phase two salvation right there. Not phase one, phase two. The experiential walk, living the Word of God. Shrinking back sparks temporal life destruction. 1 Corinthians 5, five, the man of incest, he was delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. Is that the verse I'm thinking of? All right. I have decided to deliver such a one. So thankful we don't know his name. It's probably Bob. It was probably... I keep looking for, I can't find any Bob anywhere in the Bible, and it was probably this guy, I don't know. But he's not named for us, he's just called such a one. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's present discipline here in time. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's not going to go to hell when he dies, he's a believer but he's going to have some flesh destruction right from the hands of Satan here and now. Temporal life destruction. Philippians 1.10 So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day... Nope, wrong verse. Philippians 1.28 In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you that you too from God. We talked about that crowd that was preaching Christ with impure motives. They can anticipate some temporal life destruction in the process. And of course, we were just in 319. Talking about our citizenship is in heaven. We have the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. 1 Timothy 1.20 and 1 Timothy 6.9, more temporal life destruction. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're delivered over. Present destruction. I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You know, if you need remedial teaching, it's got to come here now while you're on earth. What's he going to teach you in the lake of fire? And 1 Timothy 6.9, the last use of 
These are all temporal life destructions. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Temporal life destruction. And the best example for this is Peter walking on the water. In Matthew 14, I'm running out of time, but don't you just love the story? They're in the boat. Here comes Jesus. And they're all afraid because I think it's a ghost. And then he says, I am. Ego, Amy, I am. Do not be afraid. And Peter gets out of the boat. And he gets a lot of criticism because he does start to sink and he loses his faith. But at least he was out of the boat. The others didn't. He was the one guy that got out of the boat. And so long as he kept looking at Jesus, things were fine. Okay? Matthew 14. You know the story, right? I mean, I don't have to point this out, but what does it say? Because he took his eyes off the Lord. And so Jesus said, uh, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. He said, come. And Peter got out, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, what was he looking at that for? He became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Why wasn't he looking at the Lord in the first place? And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you have a little faith, why did you doubt? All right, keep looking at the Lord and walking by faith preserves the soul. It pleases God. We are not of those. I would not not have Austin Bible Church be like those believers. I want Austin Bible Church to be like these believers. Those who walk by faith for the preserving of the soul. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the content of Hebrews chapter 10. The, The message is deep, Father, and we can chew on it for days and weeks and years to come. But Father, we recognize that there is a way of life that pleases you and it's all laid out in your word. And there is an empowerment to walk that walk. And I thank you that you've made it possible. There's also a way of life that does not please you, that shrinks back to destruction. And Father, we, uh, we want to avoid that. We want to protect ourselves from that. Some of us, many of us, have friends and family members that are in that kind of walk right now. So Father, we want to be gracious towards them. We want to be merciful. We want, uh, we want to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, Father. We would love to, uh, to see our loved ones back on the path that they should be on. So, Father, we commit this to you as well, asking for your faithfulness. Recognizing, Father, that there is a great day coming, I thank you that we can celebrate it, we can sing about it, we can look forward to it, but there's a group of people that should not look forward to it. There's a, certain, there's a segment of our world today that when that great day comes, they have, uh, they have their eternal judgment awaiting. Thank you for this powerful truth, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.